January 21st, 1989, we all officially came and got landed in the United States. So I came to the States and had my pops trying to be like a assertive parent. It was really tough for me in the first couple of years in school. I just didn't feel like anybody cared about me. The topic of today's podcast is a journey from Jamaica to a PhD with Winston Benjamin. Unpacking Education is brought to you by Avid.org. Avid believes that every learner can develop student agency. To learn more about Avid, visit their website at avid.org. Welcome to Unpacking Education, the podcast where we explore current issues and best practices in education. I'm Rena Clark. I'm Paul Beckerman. And I'm Winston Benjamin. We are educators. And we're here to share insights and actionable strategies. Education is our passport to the future. Our quote for today is from the song, Untold Stories, by Boohoo Banton. He sings, Who can afford to run will run, but what about those who can't? They will have to stay. Opportunity, a scarce, scarce commodity. I kind of wanted you to sing that, Rena. I mean, you can sing it. You're a singer. <laughs> maybe we maybe we have Winston sing it. He, he can sing uh, it. I don't, I don't if if you don't want if you want to know, yes, this song is very important to me, and I'll explain to you why the song is important to me. Um, but Paul, what what does it uh, speak to you? How does it speak to you? Because I just want to hear how Americans hear a song about Jamaica from a Jamaican. So. What what do you think yeah. about the song? Well, first, I did not know it was a song from Jamaica by a Jamaican, but I um, I knew it was a song. So mm. right there, you earn points, Winston, because yeah. I'm all about song lyrics. But I was thinking about barriers that we face because I I hear in the in the lyrics that people can afford or they can't afford to mm -hmm. get out. Um, so money is a barrier, but it could be education, it could be illness, it could be discrimination, it could be many, many things that are barriers. Mm. And then I think about my childhood, I would say biggest barrier for Paul growing up was probably finances. I mean, I was the oldest of nine kids, and we didn't have a lot of cash. Another barrier, I suppose, was that first-generation college student, so I didn't have somebody to show me the way through all those hoops and things. Mm -hmm. But I had parents who were super encouraging, and that was like my um, secret recipe to get me through all that. And then I think about the fact that not all our kids have that mm -hmm. in our schools. So as teachers, we might have to be those surrogate parents and those surrogate role models in some of those situations. So that's what I was thinking about. I mean, yeah, all of the above. And for me, the song means, so it's it's the immigrant story, right? Like a lot of times when you think about it, immigrants usually are the ones who can muster and gather many resources, even though they come from a place that has limited resources. But that's the thing is they're, they're engaging with and running and trying to do the best they can with limited opportunity because it's such a hard thing. And that was one of the things my parents always reminded me of is that we still have family back home in Jamaica who struggle every day, right? One of the most expensive things in Jamaica is food. So like the idea of having just a chance to make a chance and just keep trying 
was really important because opportunity and commodities are scarce. There's not everybody's going to get something. And what does that mean that you're going, you're in a world where sometimes you have to go without just because it's the necessary for the thing for the all to survive. So, um, this song was a, a important thing that my brothers used to play for me. My mother used to play, my pops used to play as a way to remind me the youngest to America, that there's still more than just America, you know? So cool. Thanks for the perspective. I, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then even once in America, it's interesting how it applies. I was just thinking a lot about my dad and his situation and how I benefited as a result of his running mm-hmm. you know, from Jersey um, and to get out it's similar, very impoverished with a alcoholic father and a mom that worked three jobs just to put some semblance of food. But and so, and also thinking about the the time, the Vietnam War and the draft. So he got out, <laughs> and it was it's interesting. Yeah, and kind of the the opportunity how it presented itself. Yeah, and sometimes kids don't remember or even notice that like mm-hmm. there's like there's so many sacrifices that are made for them to exist without knowing that there are those many sacrifices being made. Like my mom used to say this all the time, like you got to rob Peter to pay Paul. Sometimes you got to nope. be a little bit late on the light my bill. My dad says that all <laughs> the time. You know what I'm saying? got to be a yeah, little I'm late. I'm all about paying Paul. You keep paying him. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, listen, bills count. So just those little stories about like sometimes you got to realize what choices are being made. My dad calls that finagling, and that his mm-hmm. and it's funny how he ended up going into economics, and because it's he was a world class finagler, right? <laughs> Still is. Still is. But so this is kind of a cool episode, Rena, because our guest is our good friend and host co host Winston. Mm-hmm. Winston, welcome to the episode. Woohoo! Thanks for having me, y'all. Uh, if, I, 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 this is a, a little nerve wracking. I'm kind of scared. Hopefully, you'll like enjoy our conversation. <laughs> you know, actually, it's kind of funny because we have known each other now for like three years. But there's a lot of your story that I really don't even know. You know, especially you, you talk about you came from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. I don't really know much about that. You want to? Talk about Jamaica and and your growing up there. Yeah, ah, man. So because I knew this was come, this episode was coming. I actually called my mom and we, ah, man, we relived a few of our memories. So I lived. I grew. I was born in in Kingston, Jamaica. I grew up in this small uh, community called Cotburn Pen, which is one of the largest. Um, Indian from India in Jamaican community, right? Um, on a street called uh, Condal Terrace. Five Condal Terrace is the actual address of my street. The only thing that's remaining from my house is the sto- the stone steps. We lived in a um, like a wooden a, a wooden shack with a zinc roofing on it. It was me, my mom, my dad, and uh, my two brothers and my sister in a small um, one room shack. So that was really for me. I didn't realize I was poor in Jamaica because everybody else looked the same way. We were all like in the same mug, walking around barefoot, no shoes. And this is 1980s Jamaica. 
So it's just a little bit different in terms of the, the context of poverty. Like the island was a few years behind in just the terms of the country. So it felt more rural um, in many ways. But so it was, it was a lot. I still have my um, DuPont primary middle um, elementary school T-shirt. I was so small as a small baby. But what I remember is my brother had to take a common entrance exam was one of the first time I realized education matters. So a common entrance exam is the test you take to get into high school. And depending on how well you do determines your experience in, um, in school. And my brother went to KC College, Kingston College, which at the time right, was a very big for my parents who really didn't have the most highest education experience. So from there, um, we didn't live in the best places. And in 1987, my grandmother came and the story that my parents told, it was raining so hard that when she stepped in our yard, it was so muddy that she couldn't believe that her grandkids was living there. And then she signed the papers to get us to the state that year. So it was like one of those kismet situation that really led our families to even get a chance to come to the States because like without a sponsorship, there was no way to go. And my parents were trying to go from the set from the So was your grandma forward. in the States then? My grandmother was in England and then married a dude in the US. So she had dual citizenship and it was one of those only like we got lucky. My funny thing is my grand my mom's dad, Michael McPherson, worked in the US during um, World War Two in Syracuse, New York, building ships. That was one of the biggest things is that a lot of Jamaicans come to the U.S. to build ships in New Jersey. Um, got spinal meningitis, lost his eardrums in the medical thing, and then had resources for us in the States. So that's how, like, family connected through that way. And, like, being a military, my aunt came to the U.S. through that as well. My aunt Ivy, she was in the U.S., but she didn't have the opportunity to sponsor my mom. So it was through my dad's mom who gave us gave us the sponsorship. It was so that's the thing about being in Jamaica is this is always some sort of connection to some hope. But depending on how things play out, it either works or not. But it was my parents were looking to try to get us to the States for like five to six years. And we got lucky that my grandma, um, my dad's mom, Miss Blackwood, was had enough citizenship in the U.S. Uh, to sign over the paper to, to get us to come and sponsor us. So she sponsored us in 87. My dad came to the U.S. in 88 to the Bronx, try to figure that out. Um, left my mom with four kids in Kingston in 88. Hurricane Gilbert came, blew, out, blew down our house. So it was like one of the tr most traumatic experience. I remember as a kid watching a bird getting stuck in a hurricane wind shawl. And ever since that day, like rain, wind, I'm, it messed me up for a very long time in terms of like I didn't have my pops or the family. But January 21st, 1989, we all officially came and got landed in the United States. So uh, I was six and seven years old when I came. So it was still for me, it was all the joy of. I, I'm having fun running around being happy, but I didn't really understand the context of what we lived in at the time, right? It was always going back home that really made made it make sense of how lucky we were to get out. You've talked before about the fact that, you know, your dad had come over earlier. So you maybe didn't know your dad super well. 
Yeah, at the time, like when we first got, when I first got back to the states, it's like he was this big figure. He's Winston Senior, and I, like, I it was like three years of my life. I had no idea who he was, so it was like, you're you're him, I guess. So it was really trying to reintroduce, especially because when things were when I when I get scared, I got scared at the time. It was like my older brother Neil was the male figure that I really gravitated to. So when I came to the States and had my pops trying to be like a assertive parent, it was really tough for me in the first couple of years in school. And I remember getting in trouble a lot when I was uh, when we first got to the US. It was it was tough. It was tough because teachers would threaten like back in the days it was like, oh, we're gonna call your dad. And I'll be like, ah, word, you gonna call him? F you, let me act up, let me do worse. So it was a really tough, first year and a half trying to reestablish a relationship with him because again like when when i was at my scared worst he wasn't there which a lot of times i still hold think about as a part of our relationship like what does that mean so when you when you came you said you were what six seven Mm -hmm. so what was that initial school experience like for you oh my god it was <laughs> the worst i had a jamaican accent back then you know what i mean so i was definitely speaking a little different and um my mother still has my my first report card and uh they mentioned that i should be in special ed i spelled color with the u <laughs> right just the little <laughs> exactly just it sm- makes more sense y'all. small little nuances like that really just made me academically not feel part also i was made fun of a lot by other kids in, in school right because of the accent i wasn't hip enough and it was just like the first few years i was just so silent i didn't participate and that's when i think people thought i um, needed speech um, support because I just didn't talk. I just didn't feel like anybody cared about me until I met Miss Alejandro. He was our Miss Alejandro was our fifth grade um, teacher, and he did a. This is the silliest thing. So every year he would put on a uh, school talent show, and the year that I did it, I Biggie and Supercat had this big song that came out, and I play. I did Supercat. I was a Jamaican playing a Jamaican kid and it was like I was on stage. It was the first time that I actually felt connected into school. And I still Mr. Alejandro still at CES 70 around the block from where I went to my elementary school. I lived a block and a half away and he still connects with my parents. But like if it wasn't for Mr. Alejandro and having a like he's Trinidadian until I met him, I like didn't have any way of being seen because people just thought I was black. They didn't realize that I was a Jamaican kid that was just not talking because no one really heard me. Right. And that was that was like a really hard thing where just feeling like that was the first time I realized I didn't belong anywhere was in elementary school. So what changed that? I mean, I see you as a successful person and good guy and confident and and all that but how'd that change and you like to talk now yeah you do. Uh, yeah you, that's the problem that that, that and <laughs> that's the thing is i was in my house i am the entertainer right being the baby of four you got to figure out how to like make people pay attention to you and by the time i came around my parents are already old so i always had to grab pull people to me <laughs> always yo like <laughs> Always. So I developed just like this attitude. But Mr. Alejandro, 
Miss Williams were two teachers that were very important for me. And then it was middle school. Alexander Brooks Major the third, Mr. Major. Still remember everything <laughs> about this dude. He was a six foot four black belt in karate, black dude who did water polo. <laughs> and all those things. And he would have us draw after school he would do um he had a martial arts class with some of the kids and he would have us write him highly intelligent males that was our superhero we were hymns and ever since mr mr major put that in our head like we were hymns like we were highly intelligent males that stuck with me on in no other level right like I was valuable enough because I could make myself valuable. It's not what other put, others put in me, right? Like I already come with stuff. So being a highly intelligent man was something so dope. And also seeing such a big, big man be so warm and loving kind of gave me my personality, right? Like I'm a six foot tall baby, right? I'm just a lovable <laughs> dude that most people think is me. But if it wasn't for Mr. Major, like, being like, yo, I, I'm a water polo player and no one expects a black dude to do water polo, right? He gave me a chance to like really see different opportunities for what it is to be, right? Like I can make up myself. But yeah, it was the reason why I taught that. So Mr. Major got me believing in myself, but it was for my gym teacher, Miss Green. She uh, hooked us up in and got me connected to a, a startup debate program, the New York Urban Debate League. And in New York in um, the late 90s, there was only two public schools in New York that did debate, Bronx Science and um, Manhattan Center. And these were the prestige, prestige schools in New York. And um, George Soros of the Open Society was like, let's fund something in schools. And my um, I began with that debate program. And it was interesting to see like people actually wanted me to talk because like before in schools it was like you talk too much like i can remember my mom beating my disciplining me extensively from <laughs> elementary school on for being talkative in school and this is crazy that i was allowed to talk and they wanted me to talk and one quote that that stuck out to me was like they had us look at malcolm x when he was like when he was in jail he was like i found my voice i found my ability to speak through debate and it was our calling card. But after, through that experience, I really learned like the racism of the world, because even though we were uh, young, young black kids, um, we had a chance to go to the New York State Championship in debate. And at the end of the, ch the tournament, the announcers was like, oh, we'd like to thank our New York Urban Debate League kids for having their own special tournament. Thank you for trying to engage in debate. And they counted out fourth, fifth, third, all black schools, all brown schools. Second place was Lake Lakewood High School, which is in upstate New York. And it was just like surprised that we were able to beat a group of white kids. And we never got a trophy. We didn't get anything. It was just a, like a secondary, like, thanks for doing this. So for me, that, that gave me the like initiative to always be a, be vocal and push against Right. So that's really where, like, the initiative of being like, yo, fight for something that matters. Cause I was so disrespected. I was so disrespected that 
that's like, yo, I played your game. I did the debate the way you wanted me to do it. And it was just something else. So if it wasn't for those opportunities at that time to like feel and realize like a small space of like how foul the world can be, I don't think I would have the same voice as I do now. Mm-hmm. So you've shared a story with us in the past too, Winston, about a, a teacher who helped you understand what it would take to maybe leave the Bronx. And um, do you remember that story about restaurant? Oh, yeah, Miss Unger. She was our, was my ninth grade global teacher. She took our class to D.C. on a, on a school trip. We actually got a chance to sit in on um, the Columbine school hearing about bringing metal detectors into schools, which is wild because we had just got metal detectors in our school. But Miss Unger took us to a, a field trip to a, a fancy restaurant, and it was like she, she said that one day you're going to be in this space. But also, I would like to even push on Miss Goldstein. Miss Goldstein was my, um, our school tried to get us to take um, AP classes, even though it was like none of us were going to pass. None of us were going to pass. But Miss Goldstein had us read this book, Tuesdays with Maury. It's one of my favorite books of all time, Tuesdays with Maury. And if it wasn't for that book, I wouldn't have got the scholarship that I got to college. I got a posse scholarship. And a posse scholarship, it was like hundreds of New York City school students applied for the scholarship. You had to get one accepted into the school and then accepted by posse. So you had two levels of the application process. And part of it, you had to go and interview and meet 10 of us together and talk about how we met as a team. And I didn't know that the interview started from the moment you walked into the building. And I ended up being on an elevator with this old white guy. I had no idea who the hell he was. And he just started chatting. I was like, oh, man, I was reading this book. And he was like, what book were you reading? He was like, Tuesdays with Maury. And he was like, oh, really? I love that book. Da, da, da. Come to find out the guy went to Brandeis University where the book, where the author met his college professor. And we talked about Brandeis University and what it meant and how that's where some places I would like to go. And if it wasn't for the communication of having knowledge outside of the Bronx, having knowledge outside of like my little hood, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think I would have had those conversations to get me out. So Miss Unger starting me in restaurants. Um, and taking us to D.C. and realizing, like, I had a political voice um, really helped me realize how to talk. And Miss Goldstein, with just giving me the opportunities to read books that were outside of my neighborhood, really pushed on, like, just the ability to connect beyond. And sometimes I always think I break social cues. Like, people don't expect me to have a Ph.D. I, like, I literally, if y'all, know, if y'all would see me in the street, I look like a kid from the Bronx. I got a Bronx fit, New York Yankee fitted hat. I got a hoodie on, I got baggy jeans and some sneakers. So I look like a kid from the Bronx, but I always say, even though I'm from the Bronx, I do have intelligence. And if it wasn't for Miss Unger and all those other teachers, I don't think I would feel the same. Yeah, and I've I've had the luxury of getting to know you better and, and get, also get to work with you actually every week. So I'm glad that you came over here to Washington State, but I think that's another piece of your story. So you went to college, but then there's this whole piece that where you talk about you ultimately got your PhD, but somehow you you ended up over here all the way in Seattle. Oh man, that was <laughs> a story to have. <laughs> <laughs> so I worked for a charter school, Phoenix Charter Academy, where we had a daycare on site for our young mothers. Um, we also worked with um, former gang members and current gang members in the Boston 
Chelsea, Massachusetts area. And I would always tell my students, get your papers so nobody could tell you nothing. Right. Get your high school diploma, because like once you got that, you could get a job anyway. You could do whatever. Um, opportunities, some some opportunities came up to take leadership in the building and in our um, community. And righteously, I got passed over. But my students did not feel that. So they hit me with my own language. They were like, mister, you got to get your papers so nobody can step over you. So at the time, I was like trying to figure out what to do next. And Posse was looking to do a grad school scholarship. And if it wasn't for them in my undergrad, I wouldn't have been able to pay for college. So I applied and I looked to, to them and they had a, um opportunity to attend the University of Washington for a master's program. Um, I applied and got in and that brought me all the way over here. And then I met my advisor, Geneva Gay. And she actually sat with me for a couple of hours and a couple of days, a couple of weeks. It was like, yo, you're actually smart. You should think about this PhD. And I was like, lady, you bugging, yo. Like, <laughs> you bugging. Like, I what? What? I never, ever, ever in my life dreamt about having a PhD. I never dreamt about doing anything in terms of supporting academic knowledge or thought you know i was just trying to get a job and move forward in life right like my kids say get a piece of paper to get somewhere and this um just talking with her and thinking about it and writing my phd was literally um she called it me search where we researched ourselves and it was a way for me to justify like how the heck did i develop who i was i was a little jamaican kid who not only represents jamaica but all african-americans how did I learn that? What are the ways that I engage with that? I had a teacher, Mr. Pugh. I still remember this man. Um, he made me hate a lot of white teachers because he didn't understand us. And um, through my experience working with my, my my PhD, it really helped me make sense of it. My mother and dad, on I went to a vocational high school and we had May Day, Law Day, and we had a law celebration. And I was a good, I was a good student at the time. And my parents didn't come to the event. And he was like, Winston, your parents don't care about you. They didn't show up. And I was like, yo, bro, my mom's is working as a home health aide. She is wiping somebody's mom's ass right now. And my mom's is old. My pops is a construction worker. He is at work right now. Like, how dare you tell me that because my parents didn't show up to this event, that they don't care about me. You know how much sacrifice they made? Now, Mr. Pugh was the worst teacher ever because at the time, Amadou Diallo, if y'all know, was a New York City cab driver who was shot by the cops 42 times, including in the bottom of his feet. Mr. Pugh protested every single night and never showed up to first period. My senior class, he never showed up to first period. He was so willing to protest every day outside, but didn't realize that his job was protesting that supporting his students to get uh, get to college. All of our class failed his failed because he never collected any work or never did anything. I lost my opportunity to graduate with a paralegal studies. Luckily, I had um, accounting as my secondary backup, but he lost four years of effort and opportunities that I could never get back because 
he didn't realize what his students, families and community did to support their kids or how he could be supportive in that way. So within that work and all of that, that really pushed me into like becoming uh, a teacher that focuses on equitable engagement with students, right? Like knowing where they come from so that you don't make stupid statements and put your foot in your mouth and make a kid hate coming into a space and not feeling seen and not feeling loved because my parents worked their ass off to give me everything that I could get. So that's one of those things that really like influence how I work with our Washington state teachers. Cause as you know, in the state of Washington, we have a lot of immigrant students and it's just like, for me, it's important to recognize that you may not know the full story. So don't make assumptions about how and why they're living the way they're living. Cause they're just trying to make an opportunity of a chance with a chance. So you've had positive experiences with teachers and, and some less positive. If you could go back and talk to young Winston, what would you tell young Winston? Don't be afraid. I was work. I was afraid of trying things and failing because if I failed, what would my parents or what would the opportunity be that I lost? Right. I didn't do things that I didn't know I, I wasn't going to be successful at. Debate was the only thing that I pushed myself out into my um, comfort zone. Told him the elementary school me like it's not you. It's not you. It's not you. Don't feel less than because your teachers didn't see you because at home I was I was loved. I was loved. But when my first few years of schooling, I felt like the most unloved. So if I could go back and tell them, like, don't worry about it. People got you. People going to hold you. And down. it seems like through the years, you ran into those teachers who did have you. I mean, you rattling off names of teachers. Yeah, still like, to this day. Like, I still have positive. connection with Mr. Lieberman. Like, and if it wasn't for those people who took the time to take a second to say, yo, I believe in you and I see you. Like, I don't think I would have came out of the, the feeling of being another. I definitely wouldn't have. So you alluded to this a bit with the work you do with teachers here in Washington State, but what would you say to teachers who have a student like you in their classroom? I never had teachers talk about Marcus Garvey as a value to America. Marcus Garvey... If no one knows the Jamaican immigrant who in the 1920s started the United Negro Improvement Association, and he had a interesting color scheme for his flag, which is red, black and green, which is now considered the Pan-African or the black American flag. I never had a teacher tell me that I influenced America. I never had a teacher recognize any other part of me other than you're just a big ass boy from the Bronx, right? They never sell anything. So for me, I think it's for the teachers that I work with. It's like, what cultural knowledge are you bringing in the classroom? Because I wouldn't have been able to tell that teacher that story if they had asked me, tell me about yourself. I would have known anything. I was six, seven when I came here. I didn't know anything about Jamaica other than the fantasies that I remembered in my head. Right. So like what what are the things that the teachers are bringing in to give the students something to latch on to? Right. Like that's an important part of it is like, don't 
you have there's enough knowledge for you to bring for a student to feel connected so what are you doing to like see who they are are you asking questions about like hey where'd you grow up what's your favorite food right what what don't you like doing what do you like doing how's your relationship with your parents because like sometimes the expectation for our male students and our, and our from our family homes might be different from what a teacher's expectation is Right. So it takes a second to like really ask those questions and also bring information into the class where the kid can say, oh, I know stories of Garvey because I could tell you fables about him leaving Jamaica and how and when he was locked up because of his political views as a son of a Rastafarian. Right. I can't tell you stories unless you give me a space to, to find an access point. So I think for me, that's the biggest thing for, for my teachers, if I could tell them now, it's really try to figure out what are ways that you bring in knowledge about your students before you ask them who they are. Sounds like you're leading us right into the toolkit, Winston. Perfect. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. What's in the toolkit? What, what is in the toolkit? Uh, what's in the toolkit? Check it out. All right. Inside the toolkit now, um, Winston, why don't you go first? Uh, one of the things that I think is important for the toolkit is your teachers don't put your foot in your mouth. Sometimes you can make statements that harm students in your attempt to believing in them, right? For example, Mr. Pugh saying my parents didn't care for me. Like it was, I could think he, he was, it was his attempt to show that he cared, but, uh, not knowing that my family cared enough about me to go to work <laughs> made him not realize how disconnected he was to me. So toolkit, make sure you're, you find ways to connect to genuinely connect to your students. As you said, build that knowledge, but you have to actively go and seek the knowledge um, because otherwise society will just con continue to socialize you in um ways that are not good and you can't see a lot of those things in your own bias and you don't identify that you've caused harm so then you don't know how to repair when you don't know so for me then i would say in your toolkit is <laughs> go out seek knowledge you know listen to like this listen to podcasts there's so many different ways now that we can grow and receive information. I don't have to just read a book from the library. I can talk to students, but it's more than that. Um, I can seek if I know I'm working with kids from different, you know, once I know my, I've talked to my students, I learn a bit more about their background. Well, it's okay. Then maybe I'll go listen to something about Mar Marcus Garvey this yeah. week because mm -hmm. yeah. So Garvey, maybe I need to learn more. Okay. Now I'm interested, but I think that willingness to put it out there and not as like a burden, but as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think my, um, my toolkit is, is the whole relational capacity thing. Get to know your kids and listen mm -hmm. to them. Um, have conversations, genuinely be interested in them and get to know who they are. That can be a structured activity. That can be a side conversation. It can be a little chat in the hallway before they head off to lunch. It can be whatever, but, show you care and actually care and, and learn about, about those people, those, those little humans that you're teaching every day. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that takes us into one thing. Do, do, do. It's time for that one thing. One thing. 
All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang on one thing that Winston said, and he talked about having a space for stories. Students can't share their identities and what they know and what they believe and what they feel unless we give them a space for stories. So I think we can do that in so many ways. Um, it can be informally, but even in the design of a of a lesson or how you show what you know, if you can connect your personal experience, your personal story to the academic content, there's there's a lot of power in that. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I wanted to say is, yo, build a self-esteem. Like, I literally, to this day, I still draw him. I still draw a highly mm-hmm. intelligent male at the corner of my documents when I'm starting something important. When I'm starting something big, like if it wasn't for Mr. Major, I don't think I would have the confidence in myself. So as you're as one thing is like as you're doing with students, how are you building their internal confidence to believe in themselves beyond you? I haven't seen Mr. Major since I was what? Damn, seventh grade. It's a long time ago. I won't give you the age, but I still remember being a him. I still remember being a highly intelligent male. Yeah, I love that. I had that written down, too. So I guess I'm still thinking about this question you had, Winston, around what cultural knowledge are you bringing to the classroom and how are you bringing it into the classroom? Mm. And as Paul said, it might be through providing space for stories. Um, And I do think that in this time, there's lots of different ways to bring families in. And it's they don't have to come during the school day when they're working, Winston, right. for me to bring in that cultural story. Um, especially now. I love that. Like, you're just talking, I just had a conversation with my mom. And I was able to bring in that information. So I'm just thinking of the way that physical space and of school is changing and how we communicate is changing and how we can really expand that classroom beyond the brick walls. Sounds like a song, Beyond the Brick Walls. That should be a song. Um, I'm going to do the outro of my uh, of my episode because I get... <laughs> because the thing is, I, I, I really want... Yo, the song Untold Story is a beautiful story about how children of the family and the impact of immigration on children... If you have a chance, remember that your students are trying to make a chance. And as we've talked to many people like JJ um, in our previous episodes, is that immigrant children are not only dealing with a new culture, but they're also balancing out experiences that they don't know what to talk about or how to talk to it. I was six and I had no idea what it meant to be ripped away from my everything and dropped into snow. (laughs) Right. That was a hard transition. So as you're working with your students and as you're engaging with your immigrant children or just children in general, remember that they don't have the language to talk to you about what they're going through. How do you support them in developing the language to communicate their needs? If it wasn't for Mr. Major, if it wasn't for Mr. Alejandro, if it wasn't for Ms. Unger, I wouldn't have been able to communicate my needs. So allow for the space and allow for your students to be able to talk to you about what they need and be willing to listen. So thanks for listening to me talk to you about a little kid who grew up and who has a PhD now, because guess what? Your babies can grow up to be a PhD too. 
I came from the Jamaica, the bottom of Jamaica, to the gutters of the Bronx, to the state of Washington, and I still am a kid from Jamaica, the Bronx, with a PhD. Thank y'all for listening. Let your kids be all they can be. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Education. We invite you to visit us at avidopenaccess.org, where you can discover resources to support student agency, equity, and academic tenacity to create a classroom for future-ready learners. We'll be back here next Wednesday for a fresh episode of Unpacking Education. And remember, go forth and be awesome. Thank you for all you do. You make a difference.